Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 1939. Leap, Creep, Sleep Data, Sleep, the week of September 23rd, 1990. Welcome to Retrogram. Pick a week between 1970 and 1990, watch all of the sci-fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows that week, think thoughts about them, and do this podcast whereupon I turn those thoughts into words, hopefully in the right order, and spew those words at you, dear listener. The week of September 24, 1990 is one I remember as being about one month into my time as a college student. I was walking to West Ark Community College just down the street from the house I grew up in, and attending classes that went with my original major in journalism. Because I was still working weird hours in radio, I took mainly evening classes, though not all of them were evening classes, it gave me a chance to compare. My day classes were frequently populated by some of the people I'd recently graduated high school with, and as a result, those classes felt an awful lot like high school, which I was not in a mood to repeat. I really didn't have a lot of fun in high school, though the reasons for that really had more to do with what was going on at home and my sometimes self-destructive reactions to what was going on at home. The less said, the better, huh? The evening classes were populated by people who were as old then as I am now, and there was a lot less goofing off as a result. I liked the evening classes a lot better. The next semester I was going to lean hard toward a schedule of all evening classes if possible. But for now, I was a college freshman who was a semester away from being chased out of his journalism major by, shall we say, an abrasive instructor. He might actually have done me a favor. Outside of the classroom, in the meantime, tensions were rising in the Middle East after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was becoming an occupation, and the ink dried on the paper that would finally allow for the reunification of Germany. On TV, NBC had just rolled out a brand new show called Law and Order, and PBS premiered a new Ken Burns miniseries, The Civil War. The MPAA created the NC-17 rating, which did not apply to Goodfellas, which had just hit the theaters. There was still some good stuff on TV, if you were a fan of sci-fi, though. Quantum Leap, Season 3, Episode 1, The Leap Home. Aired Friday, September 28, 1990, on NBC. The story so far. Dr. Sam Beckett has devised a means of time traveling within his own lifetime, but his test flight doesn't go as planned. His destinations in terms of place and time are random. He always arrives at some point in history where people see him as someone who was already there, but he has the free will to change events. So he does, trying to steer history onto something of a kinder, gentler course, and trying to see that justice happens in some difficult moments in history.
The only connection he has to his time travel lab back home is a hologram of his friend Al, who provides him with a read on where and when Sam is, as well as a firm opinion on what Sam can or can't change. Sam doesn't get to leave until he's ensured the history won't change drastically because of his presence. But at what point does he get to go back home to the future? The Leap Home Well, it's not going to happen today. Sam finds himself in a cornfield. Holy crap, he's pissed off Anthony Fremont and he's been sent to the cornfield! Oh, no, wait a minute. Sorry, that was the Twilight Zone. Sam is wearing a high school letter jacket and jeans and a baseball cap and... It's November. November 1969, Elk Ridge, Indiana, because there are some of the cheerleaders from Sam's high school, and one of them wants to know if he has a date to the dance. And wait, this time Sam's just Sam. Sam Beckett has leaped into his own life for once. He's just Sam Beckett, and for once everyone knows he's Sam Beckett. But they know him as Sam Beckett, awkward teenager, not Dr. Sam Beckett, theoretical physicist and time traveler. Sam's a bit reclaimed at the sight of his parents, both alive. He's even happy to see his little sister and the family farm. And his mother's cooking, especially the peach cobbler. Oh, hey, Al. Sam excuses himself from the table to do his chores, and so he can confer with Al. It turns out this is all about a big basketball game that Sam's high school team lost in his senior year. According to Al, Sam's here to win that game instead of losing it. It would change a lot of lives for the better and send Sam on his way to his next leap. But there's a little problem. Sam would rather stay, in his own past. If it's 1969, he has three years to try to prevent his father's death. He can try to keep his sister from marrying an alcoholic abuser. And Sam might even be able to save his older brother Tom from going to Vietnam, where he's going to die. You know how Sam keeps hoping each leap is the leap home? For Sam, this is the leap home. And it starts the next morning. Though Sam's father is less than receptive to Sam suddenly trying to change his diet and throwing away his stash of cigarettes. At basketball practice, the coach has brought in someone more fierce than usual for scrimmages before the big game, Sam's older brother Tom. After practice, Sam immediately sets about trying to convince Tom not to ship out. In fact, he lets slip to Tom that he has seen the future, he knows Tom is going to die in Vietnam. Tom naturally tells everyone else about this. Sam's family humors him, though his little sister, a big Beatles fan, wants to know whether or not Paul is dead, like the rumors say. No, Paul's not dead, Sam tells her. But as for John, right about then Al pops up and tells Sam to cut it out. Sam changes the conversation by playing his sister a song from the future, a little number called Imagine. Al even sings along, even though only Sam can hear him. Sam's sister freaks out. If that song is from the future, maybe Sam is right about Tom. Al pulls Sam aside. You're not succeeding in changing anyone's future. You're just making the present miserable for them. Just stop it. Enjoy being with them again. Because nobody gets this chance. Nobody gets this chance to go back to the way things were. And here Sam is making things worse instead of better. A lot worse. Reluctantly, Sam tells his family that he made up all of this talk about the future because he's worried about his older brother. Thanksgiving dinner happens. The big game happens. Only this time, Sam makes sure his team wins, having made a bargain with his brother. If Sam wins the big game, Tom has to promise to be a bit less gung-ho in just a few months. 
on the day Sam remembers as the day Tom Beckett died. But even after sinking the game-winning basket, changing the destinies of many of his classmates, Sam gets no good news from Al. Tom Beckett is still fated to die in Vietnam. Sam reaches for his older brother, but leaps before he can say anything else. And at the other end of that leap, Sam finds himself in the middle of an ambush in Vietnam with his platoon leader, Tom Beckett. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh sh**. To be continued. I distinctly remember watching this episode when it first aired, and as they say, it hit me right in the feels. I wanted Al to shut up and let Sam do his thing. I had just lost my mother to cancer three years and change before this episode aired, so I was totally in the camp of Sam keep warning everyone about things that will kill them, especially since they were signposting that Sam's dad's smoking habit was what was going to kill him. Kind of close to home there. I really appreciated that this was handled as a character thing and not as an after-school special kind of thing. Hey kids, remember, don't smoke! Scott Bakula has an odd dual role here, playing both Sam and Sam's dad. And Bakula... Well, okay, before I get into this, let me get one thing on the table. Scott Bakula is an amazing actor. Quantum Leap was a real gift that allowed him to stretch his already considerable abilities in every possible direction. Now, sure, I like Scott in Star Trek Enterprise. He's okay in that NCIS spinoff, but I loved him in Quantum Leap. I think you're going to find that this show is where 90%, if not more, of Scott Bakula's fan base discovered him. Now, that being said, he was either right on the money as Sam's dad, or he was off, and there's really not much in between. I think a lot of that is down to the script. Sam's dad, and Sam's relationship to his dad, this is Jonathan Kent all over again. Now, for those of you not steeped in the mythology of Superman, Jonathan Kent was Clark Kent's adopted father, the man who found baby Kal-El in the wreckage of his Kryptonian vehicle, who discovered in the process of saving the baby that baby Kal-El was something very special and wound up saving him instead. Jonathan insisted on raising the child as a normal human boy would have been raised. Sam Beckett's dad really does hit me as a remix of the character of Jonathan Kent. Sam isn't Superman, but we, the viewers, know that Sam turns out to be someone with an amazing story ahead of him, and here we're seeing that he was raised by this kind of Midwestern farmer archetype, or maybe even a bit of a caricature, a man of humble means and infinite work ethic, a man who taught Clark, <clears throat> sorry, Sam, to always do the right thing, even if that's not always doing the easy thing. In a way, it, it's not really a remix of Jonathan Kent, it's a remix of the 1978 Superman the Movie version of Jonathan Kent. Now, with that in mind, the most interesting interaction Sam has in this episode is with his little sister. Teaching her things like saying, awesome, well before the 1980s and all of the foreknowledge about the Beatles, uh, I thought that was an interesting choice. That really depends on the viewer knowing, for example, the Beatles broke up in 1970 and that John Lennon was murdered in 1980. This was aired in 1990, so all of that was fairly recent knowledge, and there was a decent chance that, let's say, a little over half of the audience had lived through both of those events, so you could drop them into the story without having to explain a whole lot. The viewer's cultural knowledge lets you use that as a shorthand for all of the changes to come. Watergate, just how bad the Vietnam War had yet to become, the Iran hostage crisis, AIDS, the Challenger disaster. I mean, really, you think about it, all of the Beatles talk is like the gentlest thing you could possibly discuss. 
Sam could really have done a number on his sister's view of the future, but no, we're going to talk about the Beatles. I mean, he could have at least warned her that Taco was going to cover putting on the Ritz. But no. Thanks, Sam. It's like if you time-shifted this episode decades forward, and instead of warning your little sister about 9-11 and the Trump presidency, you instead tell her she's going to love Lady Gaga. By the way, Scott Bakula sings John Lennon's Imagine beautifully, and they repeated that scene under the end credits, and it really should have been under the end credits for the rest of the series. It's that good, but maybe that's just me. The young actress playing his sister in that scene really stole the show. She was really impressive for her age. This is, for me, Quantum Leap's finest hour, and when I looked it up on IMDb, looked at the rating, it looks like a lot of other people feel that way as well. This is an episode that only could have been done in Season 3. After two years of Sam's time travels, he's earned this bittersweet stop on his journey, and it just wouldn't have worked as well if it had come earlier, and we didn't already understand who Sam is and where his moral center is. And it couldn't have come later in the show, because this was in that sweet spot where Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt were firing on all cylinders with the show's writing, and they were months away from divorcing each other, at which point... Well, I'm just going to say I've always felt that had a huge effect on the show. Once that happened, you got into really weird crap like the Lee Harvey Oswald two-parter, which Donald wrote as a knee-jerk response to Oliver Stone's JFK, and you get into even weirder stuff like The Evil Leaper and that really off-puttingly downbeat series finale. Quantum Leap was still good at this point, and more than that, this episode was Quantum Leap at its best, and it's Bacula at his best. I hadn't seen this since it first aired, and just the whole array of emotions crossing Sam's face as he sees his mother alive for the first time in many years, and then just gives her a big bear hug. I'm not going to lie, I got really misty-eyed. This is some great TV here. Real Ghostbusters, a.k.a. Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters, Season 6, Episode 7, My Left Fang. Aired Saturday morning, September 29, 1990, on ABC. The story so far. Surely you've heard of the Ghostbusters, right? Peter Venkman, Ray Stantz, Egon Spengler, and Winston Zeddemore are professional paranormal investigators and eliminators basically running a supernatural pest control business with the underappreciated help of their much-put-upon receptionist, Janine Meltz. Anytime there's even a whiff of unwanted menaces from beyond the realm of the living in New York City, they dive into the ectomobile and pay a house call to try to contain it. My Left Fang The Ghostbusters are on vacation in Germany. Well, okay, kind of a working vacation. They have a job to do, but it's at least gotten them out of the Big Apple. Also, Slimer's with them. And here's their point of contact, Boris. Boris the Hunchback. He'll drive them to where they need to work, and it's a hair-raising ride, but that's not even the weirdest thing. The townsfolk are really happy to see Slimer arrive with the boys. The mayor explains, The haunted castles they see all around them used to bring a lot of tourist money in, but all the ghosts left. They don't want the ghosts busted, they want the ghosts brought back. The local innkeeper is creepy enough that she might have scared the ghosts off. After dinner, she collects samples of Slimer's slime in a small bowl and takes it downstairs, leaving the bowl next to a crypt. 
which then opens. A hand reaches out and grabs the bowl. Then the demonic occupant of the crypt rises and summons its demons. It wants Slimer so it can restore its own physical form. When it tries to grab Slimer right out of his bed, Egon and Peter grab their proton packs and start ghost fighting in their underwear. Ray and Winston have a little more time to get dressed before offering backup, but the fight's over quickly. It does yield one piece of information, though. The spirit creature that was trying to get its spectral hands on Slimer is the ghost of a vampire. They follow a weak PK reading to an abandoned farmhouse, which is odd because there are a ton of ghosts in there, but they're old and feeble. They used to haunt the castles until the ghost of the Count got hold of them, just like it hopes to get hold of Slimer. The next time it appears, it drains Slimer's slime, leaving him a dried-up ectoplasmic husk, too, and now the Count has what he needs to resume a physical existence. Unless, of course, the Ghostbusters can catch him in the rays of the sun before he's ready. The proton packs are useless, so Egon improvises mirrors that will reflect ultraviolet light at the Count, draining him of what he stole from the town's other ghosts, and rendering him harmless. The local ghosts are revitalized and ready to haunt again, and so is Slimer. The End This episode of The Real Ghostbusters was written by Sean Roche. This was one of only two scripts that Sean wrote for The Real Ghostbusters. Just two years into his career of writing for animation, he had already written scripts for the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, the animated Karate Kid, Rude Dog and the Dweebs, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the Nintendo-themed Captain N and the Game Masters. He went on from here to write for the Pirates of Dark Water, Peter Pan and the Pirates, the all-new Dennis the Menace, Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego, and most recently he's had a lengthy stint on the Christian-themed animated series Superbook. It's always nice to get the Ghostbusters out of New York City, even if they are visiting a kind of German-Bavarian mashup that makes it seem like the writer's entire body of knowledge may well have come from what little he remembers from the most recent Oktoberfest. By this point, the show was in its Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters phase, and it was in the show's playbook that Slimer had to be foregrounded. I mean, come on, there is Slimer merch to be moved. Let's make it happen. That being said, what's happening to Slimer here is kind of horrifying. If Slimer was a person, this episode would be about letting him bleed out. It's both amazing and amusing to see that making the victim not a person and making his blood green slime makes that just fine for the kids to watch. So an interesting, a little bit off-formula episode for the real Ghostbusters. A nice diversion from the show's norm at this point. Star Trek The Next Generation Season 4 Episode 1 The Best of Both Worlds Part 2 aired the week of September 24, 1990 in syndication. The story so far. In Part 1, the Borg has arrived in Federation space. They're a cybernetic alien species capable of absorbing both the technology and the organic individual members of any society sufficiently advanced enough to attract their attention. The Enterprise crew first met them a year ago thanks to Q, hey, thanks Q, and that meeting made the Borg eager to come see what the Federation and its technology are all about. Now they're here, 
far faster than anyone expected, and the Federation isn't ready for the fight. Lieutenant Commander Shelby, the closest thing Starfleet has to an expert on the Borg based only on the data gathered by the Enterprise's previous encounter with them, is sent to the Enterprise to offer her expertise. But she's also eyeing the First Officer's chair, having been tipped off that Commander Riker has been offered a command of his own. But it's a promotion he hasn't accepted, so... Awkward? But even Shelby's help is no match for the Borg. A boarding party beams into the Enterprise's bridge and abducts Captain Picard. When Riker sends an away team from the Enterprise to return the favor and board the Borg ship, they find Picard. But he is no longer Picard. He's been assimilated into the Borg hive mind and now calls himself Locutus. And the Borg now know everything he knows. The Best of Both Worlds, Part 2 The Borg's knowledge of everything Picard knew is demonstrated rather terrifyingly when Riker orders a last-ditch improvised weapon based on channeling the warp drive energy through the Enterprise's main deflector at the Borg cube ship, causing absolutely no damage. Because that was a plan devised when Picard was still aboard the ship, he knew about it, and now the Borg know anything that was in the planning stages as a defense. The Borg ship resumes its course directly for Earth, at the heart of the Federation, and the Enterprise has to sit still while the crew repairs the warp engines. Riker consults with Admiral Hansen, who has a fleet of 40 ships standing by to head the Borg off at the Wolf 359 star system. Hansen announces that Picard is considered a war casualty. No further effort will be expended on trying to recover him. Riker is now the captain of the Enterprise. Hours pass as the repairs continue, and Will Riker gets used to having four pips on his collar. A jumbled signal from Admiral Hansen brings inevitable bad news. Starfleet's forces at Wolf 359 are being outgunned by the single Borg ship. The Enterprise is finally back in fighting shape, and a course is set for Wolf 359, while Riker reluctantly promotes Shelby to his first officer, and reluctantly admits that he's not sure that they can do much more than slow the Borg down. Riker settles into Picard's ready room, where his first visitor as the Enterprise's captain is Guinan, urging him to take the Admiral's advice. Don't hold out hope for recovering Picard. Consider him a dead man. The Enterprise arrives at Wolf 359 and finds a field of debris where 40 Starfleet ships had been. There are no signs of survivors, but there is a trail of breadcrumbs left by whatever the Borg use as engines. The chase continues, and Riker decides to fall back on a plan that Shelby devised earlier to separate the Enterprise's saucer section and attack the Borg as two separate ships. Shelby reminds him that Picard was in the room when she suggested that, but that's what Riker is counting on. The Enterprise intercepts the Borg, and Riker contacts his former captain, who is now even more Borg than before. The conversation is pretty short. The saucer section separates, and while the drive section hurls all of its firepower at the Borg, the saucer section launches... Well, it's kind of like an antimatter fireworks display that confuses the Borg's sensors, a new plan that Picard wasn't briefed on, and this allows a shuttle from the Enterprise to slip through the Borg shields. Worf and Data beam from the shuttle into the Borg ship, where they subdue Locutus and beam him back to the shuttle, and then make a beeline for the Enterprise, which beams them out of the shuttle and aboard the Enterprise before the Borg predictably destroys the shuttle. Then they resume their course for Earth. Locutus is now in sickbay, and the Enterprise has... a hostage? Or maybe something better than that. Picard is wired up in Data's lab, and Data connects himself to Locutus to try to access the Borg's network to slow them down while the Enterprise pursues. 
Whenever Data tries to slip in a command to the Borg network to stop the cube's engines or shut down its weapons, it won't work. Those parts of the network are firewalled. Locutus awakens and tries to break out, but Data literally rips part of the Borg apparatus off of Picard's arm, and that's when Counselor Troy begins picking up on Picard again. Somehow the fight with Data has brought his consciousness back to the surface. But time's running out to do anything with that information. The Borg cube is hanging low over Earth, ready to assimilate the entire human race. The Enterprise attacks with its usual means, not making a dent, and Riker orders Wesley to set a course to ram the Borg ship with the Enterprise. In the lab, Picard weakly says one word to Data. Sleep. But it's not because all of this Borg business has made him want to go down for a nap. Data sends a command into the Borg network to go into regeneration mode, to stop doing everything and recharge. And just like that, at the last possible second, the Borg's attack on Earth stops. But the sleep command has done more than that. Because the Borg ship was already at full power, the recharge sequence is going to overload the power systems and destroy the cube. The Enterprise warps away as the Borg ship explodes, and in Data's lab, Picard staggers, almost going to his knees. But he is Picard again, and not Locutus. Severed from the Borg network, he is no longer under their control. But he remembers everything he did while he was connected, including wiping out 40 Starfleet ships and their crews. The battle over, Picard begins his recovery, and everyone keeps assuming Riker is off to the captain's chair of another ship, but he's not ready to give up his position on the Enterprise. Commander Shelby is off to rebuild Starfleet, the Enterprise is due for much-needed major repairs, and Picard... well, Picard stares out the window at Earth, still remembering everything. He'll never quite be the same man again. To be continued. I mean, it doesn't say to be continued on the screen, but you just kind of know. So, this was it. After months of waiting since Part 1 had first aired in early June, this was how the story wrapped up. Well, yes and no. Best of Both Worlds is one of the biggest flashpoints in the entire Star Trek franchise. The following week, Picard had to face his guilt over what happened here in an episode called Family that was effectively Part 3 of this story, an unusual amount of running storyline for a non-soap opera show in 1990. But this episode also informs future Star Trek movies, particularly 1996's Star Trek First Contact, which in turn heavily influenced Star Trek Voyager as well as the 2001 spin-off series Star Trek Enterprise. And of course, earlier this year in 2020, we had the first season of Star Trek Picard, in which Picard once again had to step into a Borg cube and reveal that there was no small amount of post-traumatic stress disorder that he had been carrying around with him for decades after this story. And there were survivors of the battle at Wolf 359. The first scenes of the first episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, launched in 1993, revealed that Commander Sisko and his son Jake were among those survivors. Just about every future iteration of Star Trek uses the best of both worlds as a touchstone. Star Trek Discovery doesn't, well, not yet, because its first two seasons happen a hundred years before the Battle of Wolf 359, but its third season, which has yet to air at the time I'm recording this, happens further in the future than any previous Star Trek show has gone, so the battle with the Borg may yet crop up there in some fashion. At the time, though, I remember feeling a little underwhelmed, and that feeling grew over the years. The ending was a little too easy. A lot of photon torpedoes were fired before we discovered that the Borg could just be put down for a nap. 
My feeling of dissatisfaction grew as Star Trek The Next Generation kept reaching for the reset button. Later episodes would often frantically scramble to resolve whatever huge dramatic stakes they had painted themselves into a corner with, only for a quick wrap-up to arrive and restore everything to the status quo. Some of that was just the nature of the beast. You didn't have a lot of long-running storylines, in sci-fi or not in sci-fi, because these shows would eventually go into reruns with no guarantee that the stations would run them in the right order. With very few exceptions, Star Trek The Next Generation had to tell self-contained stories that wouldn't leave loose strings that would confuse viewers of later episodes. This would begin to change in the mid-90s, but in 1990 itself, this was the way TV was done. Star Trek The Next Generation wasn't going to be the show that would rock that boat or change its course. But the first 90% of this episode is thrilling stuff. Star Trek had not done this before. I mean, really, despite my misgivings about easy wrap-ups, this episode did deliver and justified the three-month wait. It was exciting, it was action-packed, but... that ending. But has the ending actually gotten better over time? I think maybe it has. It may have seemed silly to me at the time that the Borg invasion could be quashed by putting them to sleep, but think about it in terms of every bank that was too big to fail until 2008 happened, and suddenly they weren't. Think in terms of the dot-com bust. The internet was the way business would be done in the future. They got that part right. But the sheer amount of venture capital being sunk into pie-in-the-sky startups with no business plan made sure something was going to have to give. And it did. The unstoppable can be stopped. You just have to figure out how. And don't be smug about it. Wear your damn mask and keep yourself at home. Uh, sorry, I forgot if I was talking about 1990 or now. Mad props to LeVar Burton here. For a lot of this story, it seems like he's propping himself up against the walls of the Enterprise, and, and that was because he was propping himself up against the walls of the Enterprise. LeVar had just had a surgery and couldn't handle much in the way of action. But because he's such a trooper, there he is, propping himself up against the walls of the Enterprise. Some of the more action-intensive stuff in Data's lab was handed off to Chief O'Brien. Now, I like all the monitors on the battle bridge showing the ship's status to anyone who is looking at Riker. I mean, you think about it. If Locutus is seeing the view of Riker that we see when Riker is talking to him, that you know, straight-on, stare-into-the-camera view, Locutus sees all of those monitors. And that's really handy, providing info on your ship's health to the enemy. I know it's part of the next-gen visual style to have lots of busy screen displays making everything look alive, but... I don't know, maybe this should have had a bit more thought put into it. Just show the red alert animation. I mean, that was good enough for being on the wall behind the Admiral when he was uh, communicating that he was about to be destroyed. Or maybe have an animation on standby that says something like, you know, we're going to kick your butt in flashing red letters. I mean, make it part of the intimidation tactic. I wish to state for the record how hard Ron Jones rocked the music for this episode. I remember reading at the time that he was given the budget to bring in a larger orchestra than usual. The normal Star Trek The Next Generation music playbook was to lean on small ensembles and fill out the gaps with electronics and synthesizers and try real hard not to go over budget. But because the music for part one of the story was one of the things that had won so much acclaim, I think the producers, who normally cut money from the music before they'll cut money from anything else in the budget, because Rick Berman especially was kind of allergic to uh, melody, uh, 
in themes. I think they realized they had to allow Jones to come up to that level for part two. It wasn't until the summer of 1991 that we finally got a Best of Both Worlds soundtrack album with music from parts one and two, and I sent off the order through the mail for that cassette about as soon as they announced it. And I played that cassette until it broke. Now, since 1989, I had been working at a radio station, and that station, in 91, had recently upgraded its studio facilities to include a CD player, and that's when it occurred to me that I should just buy the CD, even though I didn't have a CD player at home, and just dub as many copies on breakable tapes as I needed. So that's what I did. The soundtrack to this Star Trek two-parter was the first CD I ever owned. There's some really nice little acting moments in this that aren't flashy, they don't draw a lot of attention to themselves. Um, One in particular that I really have to single out is when Riker orders Wesley to set a course to ram the Borg ship, and Wesley just kind of sharply looks back at him. And, you know, Riker, you know, confirms his order pretty sharply. And that's the extent of the scene. I just thought that was a nice little thing because, you know, this kid's got to be thinking, okay, I'm 17 years old and I'm about to die here in a big way. We sure about this? Okay, doing it now, sir. Now, the funny thing is, I remember a Usenet discussion, and I can hear you, uh, you old school fans kind of taking a sharp breath there. Oh boy, Usenet. Where someone swore up and down that Wesley refused to set the course and Riker had him dragged off the bridge kicking and screaming by security, <laughs> which never happened. But the poster of this Usenet post, I distinctly remember, you know, well, you know, that's what I, that's what my station showed. It's like, um, dude, no. Paramount does not make a different version for the station in Raleigh, North Carolina, or or wherever the heck this guy was from. Uh, you know, everyone takes the same satellite feed, everyone airs the same show. And it really was kind of my first memory of the internet serving as this leveler of the playing field and banisher of bullcrap. Because, you know, this this person wanted us to believe, hey, you know, th- this really happened. I saw this. I swear I saw it. Y'all are wrong. It's like, um, no, dude, we we have VHS tapes that we recorded this on, went back and checked it, doesn't show that, everyone takes the same satellite feed, so uh, you're not only wrong, but you're full of crap. Just a, a weird little memory of the early internet that I associate with this particular Star Trek episode. So, to uh, answer your question, yes, fandom has always been the way that fandom is now. It's just the internet allows them to amplify it a lot louder. But the shows, they were pretty good in 1990, weren't they? On the season premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation, you once knew him as Picard, captain of the starship Enterprise. But now, he's half man, half machine. A deadly pawn of the evil Borg. His mission, to destroy Earth and anything or anyone who gets in his way. Don't miss the showdown of the 24th century on the season premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. 
The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find his work at freemusicarchive.org and betterwithmusic.com. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters for pitching in to keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts around. If you like show transcripts, early show access, and a few occasional other goodies, get yourself over to Patreon.com slash the Logbook, just like all of my supporters have. If you want to pitch in and don't feel like the monthly commitment, totally get it. You can help us out at ko-fi.com slash the Logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies, including non-medical-grade face masks, from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, or by ordering, well, anything you'd like through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. From places like Amazon and eBay, you can also sign up for CBS All Access there and watch just about any flavor of Star Trek that you like including the upcoming animated series, Star Trek Lower Decks, starting in August. Any and all support is much appreciated. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.